TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. About a week ago, a sheriff's deputy was found not guilty of charges that he was negligent in connection with the deadly Parkland, Florida school shooting back in 2018. There are lessons that police in this area could learn from cases like that. This weekend, we'll hear from a former suburban police chief about why that verdict should or shouldn't surprise you. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Tom Weitzel was chief of the suburban Riverside Police Department when the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School took place. Former Chief Weitzel had a lot to say back then about policing, the shootings, and more. And we like to check in with him for a suburban perspective on crime, policing, and such from time to time. He's been a leading voice in the local and state associations of police officials and has testified in Springfield on crime, punishment, and police reforms. And we are conducting this interview via Zoom conferencing. And Tom Weitzel, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover in this half hour about policing and justice, but let's start with that Florida case. Scott Peterson, the sheriff's deputy, was what's called a school resource officer at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and he that means he was assigned there, and he was charged after failing to confront the gunman who killed 17 people that Valentine's Day. And as we said, he was acquitted of criminal charges. But Tom Weitzel... When there was an official after-action report on that incident back in 2019, you wanted everyone in your department to read it. Uh, remind us about the lessons that you saw then. Yeah, so uh, that was in 2019. I believe that the shooting took place 2018. The governor in Florida commissioned um, a committee of law enforcement leaders, school officials, um, advocates, mental health, and they did a year-long uh, after-action report and submitted it to the governor. Then they made it available online. It's over 500 pages now. Um, and I had my department read it um, over a, a month period, both the sworn and civilian personnel, because I thought it really, for the first time, was a report that was highly critical of the police response to that shooting and the initial police response, not the second wave of officers that came in. And there were a lot of lessons to be learned. And, you know, police aren't too uh, thrilled to have reports issued where they really do slam them. And that's really what happened here. But there were a lot of lessons to be learned. And uh, so my whole department read it. 
And uh, at first, I got a little bit of pushback <laughs> from <laughs> officers. You know, like their chief is giving them a school assignment. Uh, but I think uh, eventually it was something that they all read. And then we could discuss it at roll call. And um, in my department, the roll call room was right outside the chief of police office. And after it was done, about six weeks later, we sat down and discussed what went wrong and what went right. But there was far more that went wrong than right. Mm. I know that uh, one of your conclusions afterwards was that you said uh, police officers two or three years from retirement should not be SROs, school resource officers. And this is... Uh, those kinds of officers are issues in Chicago, I know, too, and probably some other school districts. But why did you have that feeling? And obviously that was aimed at the officer who was there. Yeah, I still have that feeling. And it's changed a little bit where departments are putting their more tactically astute officers there. But it was common practice uh, throughout the nation that officers assigned to school resource were either um, somebody that the department wanted to put over there for four years because uh, they weren't very productive on the street or they were close to retirement. And the way most of those contracts for SROs work is you go in with the freshman class and you have to sign a contract for four years and you graduate with the senior class so that the same officer is there with the same group of students. But we weren't putting our best officers over there. And that started to change with uh, the Parkland shooting, and it really changed with what happened in Uvalde, Texas. No more or no longer, even school districts and superintendents won't stand for that anymore. There's a very extensive selection process now to be a school resource officer. Yeah, and you said, and I think uh, a lot of people would agree with you, that uh, de-escalation is the goal in conflicts, but there are times when what you really need is action. Yeah, there is time for a de-escalation. In fact, a lot of there's a lot of incidents that that would take place in the school setting, but in this type of setting that took place in Parkland, there was a need for action and a need for immediate action. And you know, back in 2019, I had an opportunity to speak at the School of Safety uh, Summit that was held here in Chicago. It was held at the DoubleTree Hotel in Worth, and just before I addressed that committee of school superintendents school resource officers from throughout the nation, they gave me an opportunity to reread the report, listen to the police radio tapes from Parkland and the 43 minutes of videotape. And I can tell you without a doubt that that officer that signed to the school hid behind doors and garbage cans and never went into the school when they were hearing gunshots. The police radio tapes confirm that, the audio tape confirmed that. And in fact, in one instance, if he had just opened the door from where he was hiding, he would have seen dead bodies on the floor. Just just inside the door. He never opened those doors, never, never went into the school. And and I think you can understand why local families in Parkland are livid about the verdict in this case. But I think this is a good place to to discuss. There's what makes somebody a good or a bad police officer. And then there's criminal. And, you know, how do you how do you either walk that line or judge where that line is? Well, you know, when you're a school resource officer, you are responsible. You, you are acting as a caretaker, in my opinion, for parents because they drop their students off. And even in Illinois, we have a mandated reporter law. So, you know, police officers have to report 
instances involving juveniles that there, there's there's a mandated reporting. The same holds for should be mandated mandated response. There is you can't be a school resource officer and cower like that. Now I want to make sure your listeners know we're all afraid. There's no officers that going towards the gunfire that isn't fearful. It, it, there's no such thing. But I heard these two statements made by the officer's attorney I thought were literally ridiculous. One was he didn't enter the building because he didn't know where the shots were coming from, which officers are trained to enter the building and we never know where the shots are coming from. You're following the sound of the shots towards where that may be a classroom, a library, a lunchroom, but you don't ever know exactly where they're coming from. So you just advance towards where that happened. And I also heard his attorney say, and in his opinion, this was a victory for all law enforcement across the United States. And I thought to myself, that's a terrible statement because he made it sound like the local prosecutor in Florida was targeting him because of what took place. That wasn't the case. They didn't charge him until a year after the report came out. And I'd like to add too that, you know, the notion that it was a victory for all law enforcement officers in the United States is just, after what we've gone through in this country is an inflammatory statement. And I don't think most police officers would even agree with that. But let me ask you though, do you believe that officers should be criminally liable if they fail to to perform the way they should? Yeah, I do. And I also, here's the mistake though that was made in the Parkland uh, prosecution. In my opinion, you know, the public and jurors don't like to see prosecutors and law enforcement overcharging. If he was convicted, he was facing the possibility of life in prison. I think that was a tactical mistake by the prosecutor. I don't think he should have been charged with all the counts that they brought. And I don't think that once jurors saw that he could go to prison for the rest of his life, I believe that probably weighed heavy on those jurors. So I think there should have been a penalty, a criminal penalty associated with that if convicted and um, accountability. But I don't think they should have charged him where he could have been in prison for his natural life. And I I, want to talk a a little bit more about, about leading up to this. And you've touched on this about having officers who are not at the end of their career or uh, not not considered the best of the officers. But I saw a video, and I wish I, I tried to find it again before I talked with you, uh, of another incident in another city where we had the body cam footage of the officer who was in command of essentially the SWAT team that arrived on the scene at the school. And it was a textbook lesson in what's supposed to happen, which is the officer runs up to a school official and says, all right, what can you tell me about what's going on? And the person says, we, we, we're not sure where he is. We know there have been shots fired. Um, but, and, and he starts yelling, I need three. I need three. And you immediately, three officers come up to him. In fact, he runs to his car and gets a weapon. I don't remember which it was. And they stack up at the door and they immediately go in as soon as he gets through. I mean, he's counting. He's going, I said, I need one more, one more, one more. Okay, let's go. And they run in and they're going door to door and, and checking each classroom. Then you hear a shot and someone goes upstairs, came from upstairs and they run up the stairs 
And they're literally moving down the hall at a fast pace, but checking. And they round a corner and you hear the shots because he's two back from the officer who fired the shots. It took maybe four minutes of that video and the shooter was down. But these are officers who were trained. They knew to stack up. They knew how to check the rooms. And so doesn't that make a big difference that you have officers who know how to do that? Yeah, and that that goes right to the training. And I think the incident you may be speaking of is the shooting that took place, school shooting in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. And it was a, it was, I think it was a a private um, school. And the first officer on the scene was a military veteran. Ah. He, then the next officers, and you're right, and something that happened there is exactly what they teach you. You're not waiting for SWAT. You're not waiting for command personnel. You are you grab the next two, three people, you you go into the school, and I saw that video too, and they advanced into the school, and then they, that was a very unusual case because the offender was a female, mm-hmm. and they shot and killed her in the, I think, the library area of the school, but you're exactly right. They did exactly what their training was to do and they kept advancing the whole time and that is what i would call that school shooting for law enforcement training the gold standard so that incident where those officers responded is going to be the gold standard for training for all police officers throughout the united states going forward but how do you 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 i would think you can't train every single police officer or maybe you can uh in tactics like that though i mean those those like like you said, they they knew what they were doing when they when they went in. Yeah, you can. It takes a while. I mean, you can train your department, the first responders. It's, it's a lot easier in suburban departments because you don't have as many personnel to train. But for example, when we would train in Riverside, we would get together with Brookfield, North Riverside Lions, the Range Park. We would all train together. We would the school would give us their building one day in the summer for the entire day. And we would do training um, in July from seven in the morning till five at night. So you can train and you can train with your neighboring agencies. So everybody knows how to respond the same way. Mm. And, and if people who are listening are thinking, boy, they're talking a lot about these isolated incidents, but in fact, we are getting these kinds of things every week. Uh, Not necessarily in schools, but we are getting situations like this. So you know, maybe that training does have to be uh, more necessary. But what we are also getting is every weekend, there are people who shoot into crowds. That has happened. And, you know, and for the people who thought it was just Chicago, no, it was Brookfield. It's been a couple of other suburbs uh, in the South and the, uh, the West. So it's happening. And we should talk about how we address that kind of crime too and what do police what do the public people need to know or do about those kinds of incidents of violence those mass shootings that are taking place and you're recently and you're right it's not just the cities it's the suburbs in fact they had a over 20 people shot in suburban unincorporated willowbrook recently and um there is like these are. I read that there were six individuals that had guns just at a, a gathering in a parking lot of 300 people. So that, you know these 
weapons are playing a huge role. And the FBI recently put out for law enforcement, they put out a bulletin that says for statistical purposes, the FBI considers a mass shooting four people shot or killed, excluding the offender. So that's what that's how they track it now for a mass shooting. And there were 68 mass shootings for 2023 as of last month already. And you and me and your listeners probably know a lot of these are happening at public gatherings. They're happening at beaches, uh, concert venues, uh, sporting ev- uh, events, uh, public parking lots like happened in Unaccredited Willowbrook. They're, so they're, they're at these gatherings. Um, so, you know, in fact, you've probably seen a lot of municipalities and even the city of Chicago starting to think about canceling some events just based on the possibility of what's happening around the nation that they don't want it to happen in their community or they don't want it to happen in the city of Chicago at an event. But the only, only other alternative is they're assigning a massive amount of police officers to those events. And you and me both know that that always is not the answer. Indeed. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore. We're talking about policing with Tom Weitzel, the former police chief of suburban Riverside, Illinois. And let me just ask you straight out, do we pay a price by allowing things like assault weapons to be so readily available? I mean, a police officer with a sidearm is is outmatched by somebody with an AR-15 is that part of our problem? Doubt, and you know, I'm not taking a position on the gun rights, but there, you, you'd have to. Nobody could convince me that the average citizen needs an AR-15 or what's called an MP5, which is basically a, a machine gun for sport. It's not needed for sport. Um, and those types of weapons that fire multiple rounds at high capacity. Uh, 100 rounds and you know 30 seconds are are not they should not be on the streets they should not be available to the average um citizen because the average citizen is not, uh, is not using it um you know in the way that those are intended those are a lot of those are military weapons i mean even police departments when we would purchase them for our apartments we had to go through lengthy um government approval federal government approval for our agencies to get those and you're right, they are outgunned. I mean, there are many suburban police agencies that the officers do not carry those weapons in their squad cars. That if they need those, they would go back to the station and have to bring them to a scene. Now that's becoming less and less likely now with all these school shootings. So they're making sure that the officers are, you know, have the weapons. But um, I, I'm not for these automatic weapons, uh, rifles, AR-15s being available for the public. I mean, you can shoot. You know, 20, 20 people in 15 seconds. Mm. I, I, I wonder if sometimes our politics get in the way of a serious discussion about ways to confront gun violence, because, uh, you know, I've talked with people who are um, National Rifle Association members, even, I'll be honest, a couple of officials. And if you talk to them privately, and frankly, if you, even if you talk with gun control people privately, They'll say, well, here's what here's what we could do or here's what we could accept, um, but they won't say it in public. And, and I wonder if if there's if there's some way of uh, because, I mean, I know gun owners, one of my best friends, 
you know, owns owns weapons, and he thinks it's crazy to have those kinds of guns. And you know, but he says, you know, and he's an NRA. Well, he dropped his NRA membership because he he thought too many people were dying. I think I think many people, including strong gun advocates, are would be for some type of reasonable legislation when it comes to these um, high capacity automatic weapons, rifles, uh, AR-15 type of, of weapons. I, I really do. I don't think they serve a purpose at all um, for the public. I don't think they serve a purpose um, anything but besides uh, the military or in some cases law enforcement. But um, yeah, I don't, what, what, I think they're afraid to say in public, right? Some of it is due to political positions, right? Some is due to funding issues, maybe that's tied to the gun rights um, advocacy. So a lot of times I, I think they're reluctant to say that in, in person, but, um, or in you know the public, but we have, we have strict requirements for our officers. I mean, have you noticed recently some of these reports that police officers unsecured weapons that their own children have got them at home and shot and killed their, their, their kids have been shot accidentally? just from not even securing their weapons. And police departments have very strict rules and regulations on off-duty storage of your weapons at home. And there's still these tragic accidents taking place. Well, let's move from the the, the, the guns necessarily to the people and, and the policing that goes into it. And, you know, Chicago... Uh, has a goal uh, stated in the the new report that the uh, mayor's office has come out. Everyone says constitutional policing. It's a little hard to argue with the words. The ex- execution is where it counts. And how can we better police and be prepared for uh, or stop the kind of people who are going to be rolling around with guns all the time? Uh, without being unconstitutional? Well, I think it can definitely be done, but we have to have some law enforcement, especially in the city of Chicago, but even in the suburbs, has to have some ability to track known criminals, known gang members, and and use databases that are strictly um, regulated. But we do need intelligence, and, and we do need to be able to say this probably going to be an area of retaliation because there was shooting here. I am a big supporter of the gang database as long as it is um, factual and it's put in and it's used with discretion. I'm a big fan of the uh, uh, shot spotters. I believe they're accurate in work. Nothing is 100%. Cameras are our license plate readers are a good tool. Is is it 100% accurate? No, there's no such device out there, but they're highly active. And they do help law enforcement um, track criminals and in some cases respond quicker. Shots spotter makes you, uh, has the officers respond quicker than they normally would. And those types of, of, of tools for law enforcement, uh, many uh, organizations are trying to curb that. And I think there just needs to be, if they're gonna do some legislation or some policy development, they need to have the police involved because, Craig, a lot of these times it's just thrown on the police and just thrust on them, and it's not workable. And you, you get these laws and policies and restrictions, and you're like, well, this could have been, we, we could have worked with you on this, but you never consulted us. 
And now you gave us this statute or this policy that, that will never work. It looks good on paper. It's good PR. It's a good soundbite, but it's not going to work on the street. I want to turn with the time we have to one other issue, and that is police departments themselves are trying to attract more, more diverse and younger police officers. Um, Chicago relaxed the college degree requirement for new officers. You take a dim view of uh, those kinds of moves? I do. Um, I just saw that the police department in California extended the age for police officers to apply, not, not lowered it. And I just saw that Oakland, California has the highest signing bonus in the nation. It's $50,000 for a new nice. officers for a signing bonus. And, but what they're doing is they're trying to, um, and many chiefs are jumping on board. I don't understand this. They're lowering the standards. And I'm talking about the entry standards. There's no longer a physical fitness requirement or, um, firearms requirement, or they want to eliminate uh, the run or any of these physical um, attributes that you may need to get into law enforcement, which I think their view is, well, while you're in the academy, you will learn these skills and we will bring you up to speed and then you will graduate. Well, I don't think that's a good strategy. Um, it lowers the profession. It lowers the, the professionalism. It's basically a, a, a product of Police departments just wanting to fill a slot and get a body because they're having so difficult time with recruiting, recruiting and retention that all they want is somebody to put on the schedule to fill a slot. And that is a very dangerous, dangerous thing. But uh, the old physical requirements used to keep most women off the force. So is, is there a happy medium where you can have some requirements? But uh, I mean, for example, the college degree requirement is that a, is that a necessity for an entry level police officer? Um, those kinds of things. Do we have to make some adjustments? Yeah, they, they they have made adjustments for the female officers. So they have they have different physical fitness standards now. What's called the power test. There's a male version of it and a female version. I do not believe you need to have a college education to enter law enforcement. I believe that you should have some college uh, sixty credit hours, maybe a undergraduate degree to be promoted if you consider for promotion but at entry level i don't believe that is needed and a really good example of that is many military veterans do not have college degrees and they make great police officers that come in from the military so there needs to be um some middle ground but not dropping all of the standards i mean they're dropping standards of of criminal convictions i'm talking felonies on misdemeanors drugs um the like we spoke, spoke about college or some type of education um, recruitment, you no longer have to live in the communities you police. That's widespread in a lot of suburbs. So the, these are all requirements that you never would have seen. I mean, in Chicago, they still haven't done it yet, but you you probably go to any suburb and see that the departments have listed, lifted the tattoo requirements. They've lifted beards. How many police officers do you see with beards nowadays? <laughs> Ten years ago, you would have never seen that. I, so, I, I, I must confess, uh, I, I I see one uh, police officer with a beard and tattoos every time our son comes home. Uh, but so, <laughs> so with my kid, all my kids are in law enforcement; they're the same way. But that, that's a that's a way that departments are trying to attract individuals with with you know coming. You know, you we're gonna give some of our requirements. I'm okay with those 
as long as the tattoos aren't offensive. Most of the officers that had tattoos in my department when I was still chief, they were military tattoos. They were, they were from where their military service, which I had no problem. But I just think lowering entry standards, or in one state, they want to eliminate, completely eliminate entry standards for the police academy, which I don't think is a good idea. But let is there a need, though, for police who more resemble the communities they serve? Yeah, there is. And that doesn't just mean living there. Resembling, that means that, um, um, racial makeup, more females. Um, even these days, um, officers have, uh, departments are actively recruiting gay and lesbian officers. I mean, they do that. They go to events where they can bring those officers into the departments, show them that they, we want them, that there's a need for officers like that to be able to communicate. Because if we're talking about de-escalation skills uh, versus using um, physical skills, you have to be able to interact with the community you serve. And people have to feel comfortable with you, no doubt. That's going to be the final word for this. We are out of time. We'll have to do this more often than, than I, I confess. We haven't done it as often as we should. That is former uh, Riverside Police Chief Tom Weitzel. Thank you for spending the time with us. Um, to our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That's WBBMNewsRadio.com. There's a link on the homepage. You can also find our podcast on Odyssey.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening until then. I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 1059 WBBM. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love. Hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.